Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to the hearing of your word, we ask that you would please open the scriptures to us and apply them to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Please open God's word with me to Luke chapter 21, which we read earlier. Luke chapter 21. It's a longer text, and so we read it earlier as the reading. And we'll be looking at this text um, this week and next week, Lord willing. Where we are in the Gospel of Luke, as we've picked up this series, working through the Gospel of Luke, from chapter 19 on, it's the last week of Christ's um, earthly ministry, and he's in Jerusalem. We've already had Palm Sunday. We're now in the middle of this week. It's probably about Wednesday. His crucifixion is just in a, a day or so. And it's, it's so certain that he's, he's of his death and his resurrection and his ascension, he's already speaking of his second coming. It's a wonderful example of Jesus Christ is in just control of all these things and confident uh, of God's will in his plan for his death and his resurrection. They've been in the temple, and you remember the offering of the widow. There they've been in the temple in the middle of a conversation perhaps, but somebody brings up the discussion of what a fantastic temple this is. And Jesus gives the prophecy of Jerusalem and the temple's destruction. Let's read again verses 5 and 6 of chapter 21. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is saying this temple that they love so much, this temple that they see as the sign of God's presence and blessing, in fact, it's going to be destroyed so much so that it's not even going to be a a stone standing on another stone. It's going to be a pervasive destruction. This is not the first time Christ has prophesied this. Even the Gospel of Luke, this is the third time. Just recently on Palm Sunday, a few days before, riding into Jerusalem in tears, Jesus said, Luke 19, 44, When he drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said that in tears. At this period in the life of God's people, yes, they're vassals of Rome, under Rome's control of the Roman Empire, but everything's going really well. They're under the years of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that benefits everyone in the world. And so the idea of their temple to be destroyed, which, by the way, is being built by a Roman king, it just seems so far-fetched. How can this be that you're talking about the destruction of the temple? And so Jesus prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, but the disciples then ask him this question, verse 7. Teacher, 
when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? It's hard for us to understand how they were trying to process this and just could not process. The Lord telling that the temple would be destroyed and made desolate seemed so strange to them, inconceivable. So they thought, well, Jerusalem must stand until the very end of history. So they put these two events together, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the second coming of Christ and the end of history. They said, well, Christ must be talking about the one event. It's explicitly said that way in Matthew 24, 3. Tell us when this will happen, the destruction of Jerusalem. And and when will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? See, in their mind, they're not asking two questions. They're only asking one question. They thought the temple was going to stand till the end of time. So if Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, he must be talking about the end, the very, very end. Their temple was a magnificent temple, King Herod has already been building it for some 20 years at this point. He's assembled already 10,000 workers, 1,000 priests in masonry and carpentry. He's used over 1,000 oxen to transport stones from the quarry to the temple just two miles away. His project will continue even after the time of Christ another 20 years. It won't be finished till A.D. 66. If you can do the math, A.D. 70, it was only standing four years before it was destroyed. Its size, 172,000 square yards, meant that it was the greatest structure in the world at that time. Edersheim says it was the greatest sacred structure in its situation and its architecture in either ancient or modern time. White marble stones, grand columns, a gold roof could be seen for miles. Josephus tells us that some of the stones in the temple were about 40, quote, 40 by 12 by 20 feet in size, weighing each 415 tons. Some were even 85 feet in length. And even though the Jews had disdained for Herod, the Jewish a Babylonian Talmud stated, he that never saw the temple of Herod never saw a fine building. It really was one of the most fabled structures in all of the ancient world. But for the Jew, it wasn't just its wealth. It wasn't just its beauty. It was the symbol of God had said he was going to be with us. God has said he's going to live with us, First Kings 5. The temple becomes the sign of God's blessing, the sign of God's covenant. It represents the very center of their religion, and it's a physical sign of God's presence with them. So surely, if God's going to be with us to the end of time, the temple's going to be with us to the end of time. And if the temple's going to be destroyed, this must be the very end of, of history. That error still happens today. People read Luke 21 and the parallel passages And you can have people that fall, must be all fulfilled in the future, and they're going to miss it. Or they read it and say it was all fulfilled in the past, and they're going to miss it. And Jesus directs us in this chapter, as we should remember how to interpret the scripture, Jesus separates these two events. Yes, the destruction of the Jewish temple, but that's different from, separate from, Time is going to go on until the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's going to be a very long time. We already know it is to be over now some 2,000 years. 
before the end of history. So we come to Luke 21, realizing that Jesus is teaching on three things here. He's teaching on the destruction of Jerusalem. And secondly, he's talking about his coming at the end of the age, his second coming. And third is, how are you going to live between those two events? How then shall we live? To quote Francis Schaeffer. Luke's emphasis, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this um, Christ's prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and speaking of his second coming, but it's Luke is unique because Luke primarily gives the focus on Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. In fact, the second coming of Christ is almost implied. It's not really developed. He's different than the other gospels. And Luke focuses on, here's how you live until Christ returns. So this week, we're going to look at the destruction of Jerusalem, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, look at the second coming of Christ, but primarily, how do you live until Christ returns between these two events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Jesus Christ? So today, let's look what Jesus gives us here, the sign of judgment of Jerusalem, the response to judgment, and the duration of judgment. And then let's ask the question, what's our takeaway as we look at this history, as we look at these events? First of all, Jesus gives the sign of judgment. Read again Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its destruction has come near. Jesus said this is going to be the sign when you see the armies of Rome surrounding Jerusalem with their imperial banners flying in the wind, imperial banners declaring that emperor is God, then you will know that the fulfillment of this prophecy is about to happen. It was fulfilled and it was completed in AD 70. Jewish factions had arisen and were troubling Judah. They had taken over the government in the city of Jerusalem. And so Emperor Nero wanting to squelch this rebellion sent his general Titus and Roman forces to stop this rebellion. A war broke out that lasted four years, ended in terrible destruction, famine, disease, cannibalism, savagery, and the deaths of most people who were barricaded inside of Jerusalem. The estimates are that over 100,000 people after Jerusalem was was taken, over 100,000 people were taken into captivity And more than a million died within the city walls. Some estimates were as high as four to five million. While more Jews and Christians were killed under Hitler and Stalin, never have more Jews been killed in a concentrated area. It really was, as the scripture says, a great tribulation, unlike anything before or since for the Jewish people. Josephus observed after the Roman general Titus finally destroyed Jerusalem and after the four years, the leveling was so severe and Jerusalem's city wall was, quote, so completely leveled with the ground that there was no longer anything to lead those who had visited the spot to believe that it had ever been inhabited. The sign of judgment. Roman troops coming to destroy Jerusalem. Then Jesus gives very clear instruction, the response to the judgment. 
you are to flee from the city, verses 21 through 22. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, Jesus says, flee from the city. Those who are in Judea, don't go to the city. You who are in the city, get out. Let nobody go into the city. Why, Why did, would that have sounded strange? Well, because in that day, your best defense was to be in a walled city. So if people saw the Roman troops coming, the natural response would be, let's flee and get behind the walls for safety. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm telling you, flee, get out of the city. Do what is not the strategic thing to do. Eusebius, the Christian historian, reported that the Christians who did obey Christ and who did flee Jerusalem to the safety of Pella, they survived. But Christ had warned, and they had listened. First, when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, they had mercifully allowed anyone to leave that wanted to, but those that were leading the rebellion inside the city threatened that they could not leave. They'd be considered traitors. And so the millions of people that perished in Jerusalem... Jesus said, flee from the city and flee quickly. Verses 23 and 24, alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Did you notice Alas, verse 23 is the first word, it's standing in emphasis. It's it's a cry of horror, it's a cry of anguish at that, that thought. For those who have young children, for those who are nursing, what an agonizing time this is going to be. And it brings out Christ's compassion, his mercy, telling the people, flee, don't go through this. And and he's telling it to a city that in a day or two is going to crucify him. But yet his mercy to his enemies. Jesus is predicting God's wrath, but he finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And if Jesus Christ is showing such compassion here to those who are his enemies who will crucify him, how much more he shows mercy to you, his children? And you come to him with all of your cares, knowing that he cares for you. We see his mercy even to his enemies. Jesus says, flee from the city. Flee immediately. Because, you notice verse 22, this is God's judgment. This is going to be God's vengeance. Which is a judicial word for a punishment, retribution, Why is the temple to be destroyed? Why is Jerusalem to be destroyed? Jesus had given the answer on Palm Sunday. 
It's to be destroyed because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. God had visited you, Luke 19.44. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God had come to them and told them again and again of the gospel. And they have refused Jesus Christ, just as the Old Testament prophets stoned the prophets. They would not listen to the Word of God. And Jesus is saying, you have been visited by the Son of God. And because of that, and because of your rebellion to him, in another passage he says, all the blood of all the prophets is coming upon this generation. This is going to be a time of God's vengeance. Your ignorance, you did not know the the word of God had come upon you. Well, ignorance can be both willful and unwillful. And this was willful. They would not listen to Christ. They would not look at the miracles. They would not listen to his claims. They would not search the scriptures. And Jesus is saying, this is going to be a time of God's vengeance upon all the generations to this city who have destroyed the prophets and finally crucified the Lord of glory. So in AD 70, as the Romans come and destroy Jerusalem and slaughter the millions of people, who was destroying the city? The Romans, you say. Yes, but who was behind that? This was God's judgment to those who had hardened themselves against his word for generation after generation after generation. And push it even further. A.D. 70, where is Jesus Christ in A.D. 70? This is 40 years future from now. It's after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, after his glorification, where he's sitting on the right hand of the throne of God, ruling all things. Jesus Christ is the judge who will bring vengeance upon Jerusalem. And it's that judge, that day, who's warning them to flee. The judge who will execute sentence and execute vengeance in 40 years from now. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the judge who is in mercy, showing here's the way of escape. So that you will not face the wrath of God. Jesus gives the sign of judgment. He gives the response to judgment. He gives the... Duration of judgment, the second part of verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What is that? There's been two suggestions over the years. One is political and one is a spiritual. The political suggestion, the times of the Gentiles, is that period of time from AD 70 on, the destruction of Jerusalem, until the return of Jesus Christ, when the nation of Israel has not been a believing nation and been largely under the control of the Gentiles, where she's not been a nation to her own. After AD 70, no Jew was allowed to live in Jerusalem. It became a pagan, a Roman city. Even today, there's no Jewish temple in Jerusalem. There's a a Muslim mosque over where the temple was. Over the years, Jerusalem has been under the control of the Romans, the Persians, the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, Great Britain. So some have suggested the time of the Gentiles is human history. I think the better suggestion is that this is a spiritual reference. 
The times of the Gentiles is very similar to Romans 9 and Romans 11, that after the crucifixion and the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Old Testament people were declared, Lo Ami, no longer my people, because you've hardened your heart in rebellion. Now the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. This is the time for the Gentiles. And so after the ascension of Jesus Christ, he begins his harvest from the nations of the world and the Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and they are grafted into the olive tree and they are now receiving the benefits that were once Old Testament Israel's. This is the time of the Gentiles when the harvest is coming, the gospel harvest is coming from all the nations of the world, which we believe, I believe in Romans 11, God has promised at the end of this time there will be a great revival and salvation even among the Jewish people as they come to Christ. But whether it's a political time of history or the spiritual turning the covenant from Judaism to the nations of the world, the point is there's going to be a long period of time between the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Jesus Christ. The destruction of Jerusalem is not the end of the time. So you need to learn to endure for my sake for a long, long time. He refers to this, and we'll look at more next week, but even throughout this chapter, how Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem is not the end of the ages. Verse 9, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. End of the age is what Jesus has been talking about. It's not going to be at once, the ESV. It's not going to come right away, the NIV does not follow immediately the new American standard. It's going to be a long period of time between the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Jesus Christ. The destruction of the temple, verse 35, is only a picture of that last destruction, which is going to be at the end of the ages, verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's not the end of all things. The destruction is going to come and the nations of the world will be destroyed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then every person will stand before him as judge. It's going to be a long time between these two events. And when Jesus Christ returns a second time in glorious majesty, you're going to know it, verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing. Now you're not going to miss the second coming of Christ. It's going to be very glorious and powerful as he reveals his glory. Christ is teaching. The destruction of Jerusalem, and he warns, and it was all fulfilled just as he said it would be. And he teaches us that the destruction of the temple is not the end of history, but it is a small picture of that destruction that he as judge will execute on the end of history. And now, next week, we'll look at, well, then how are, you, how are we to live between those two events? So what's our takeaway from this as we reflect on it's an event of history? Yes, it happened. It happened a very dark um, time, the destruction of Jerusalem. What's the takeaway for us? 
I think it's at least the, these three things are illustrated very powerfully is that we are to believe and find great strength in Christ's sovereignty over trials. All this is to happen to Jerusalem. The great tribulation, it's all under the plan of God. And it's all under his control. Paul would write under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 3.3, Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know, destined for. It's a strong word, something that can't be altered. It's in God's plan. Paul would know that even of his own life. Paul is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, Acts 9. And Peter would write, 1 Peter 4.12, Do not be surprised at the painful trials you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Those who suffer, suffer according to the will of God. God's planned it all. From the rising of nations to the falling of nations to the corporate life of his people, to the ingathering of the church throughout all of history. God is working all these things for his purposes and his plan. And he plans all things for the good of each of his people. Not just the big nations of the world, but even you in your life. In every trial that the Lord brings us through, these are under the will of God. We're to believe and find great strength in Christ's sovereignty for the trials. And secondly, I think we're to believe and find great comfort in Christ's mercy. Here he is, the judge. And in mercy, he's telling people how to escape the coming wrath. And those who listened to him and who fled Jerusalem, their lives were spared. And he's telling it to a city that within days and hours is going to call for him to be crucified. If he cares in mercy and in pity for his enemies, how much more you have the assurance that you can cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And the fact that he warned them as judge, not only for that generation, but he will be the judge on that last day, won't he? When he returns in glory, scriptures tell us that it, then the unbelievers on that day, when they see him, will cry in terror for the mountains to come and cover them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And Jesus has told us of that already in mercy so that you flee from that day of wrath, so that you're prepared to meet Christ as Savior and Lord. Christ went to the cross to pay for our sin and to take the full judgment of God. That's where the wrath of God was poured upon Christ. And so that all those who put their trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, there's no double jeopardy. 
There's full forgiveness, full pardon for those who trust in Christ, and you will never see the wrath of God. But those who do not trust in Christ, the wrath of God still abides upon them. But Christ has told us this ahead of time in mercy. Yes, he will be the judge on that day, but he's also revealed to us. Flee from the wrath to come. We find great comfort in the mercy of Christ. And third, I think we are to believe and find great encouragement in the truth of Christ's word. Look at verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying even this creation is not permanent, will be destroyed, but my words are permanent. My words are absolute truth. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you notice what Jesus is saying? He's saying, my words. How can he say my words are everlasting and eternal? Only because he is God. It's the word of God that is everlasting. And Jesus is putting that together for his audience. Jesus is saying, you can absolutely count on my teaching. You can absolutely count on the destruction of Jerusalem. I've warned you about 40 years from now. And it all came to pass. So too, then you have the assurance. Everything Christ has taught us about his second coming will come to pass. And everything that Jesus has taught us his commandments, his warnings, his requirements, the hundreds of promises, they're all absolutely true. His word will never fail you. It is absolute truth. What a contrast to the day in which we're living. There's no absolute truths, and my truth, and your truth, and no. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And that includes John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you believe him? Do you believe his word? Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the absolute truth of the word. Thank you for even this very sad, dark time, the destruction of Jerusalem, but yet it illustrates so powerfully the truth of the word of Christ. We know ultimately we do not believe your word because it makes sense. We don't believe your word ultimately because we're convinced of it. We don't ultimately believe any of these things unless your spirit opens our heart to believe them. What do we have that we've not received? 
And so we pray, our Father, that you will give us each of us hearts to believe these things are absolutely true. And Christ is absolutely true, and Christ is the Savior, and he is the only hope for our salvation. May you do this work in each of our hearts and apply your word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.